Matthew 21, beginning in verse 23. Now, I just want to tell you, there's a lot of real great reasons uh, why we live in the state of Texas. And it's great to be a part of uh, the Texas culture. Now, we have folks that are new to fellowship and new to Texas, and I just thought, you know, I've been here for 11 and three quarters years now. I thought I'd maybe just kind of help you get inducted and introduced to Texas, help you understand some of the things that you're seeing and facing. For instance, let me, this will be greatly helpful for you. Texas is not just a state. It's a state of being, okay? And so that is going to really help you. It's not just a place on the map. It's a way of life. It, you just think Texan, and it's different than the rest of the country. I mean, we're really happy about our state flag. We fly it everywhere. We got a state flag as big as an, a landing strip for the airport there flying off of 84. I mean, we, we're happy about the state of Texas. We got stars everywhere, okay? And there, you know, not only in Texas, we have all these Texas mementos and things that mean a lot to us, but Texans have their own lingo. And for those of you who are new, and I remember when I came here, like, I'm hearing things I've never heard before. And so, like, for instance, you know that you've come to adopt this great state of Texas when you understand phrases like, this ain't my first rodeo. Okay? When you hear that, you're like, oh. At first, yeah, I didn't know what that meant, but that means that the, that's not the, this is the first time I've done something like this, okay? I've, I've had these kind of experiences. Here's another one. I had to pay some tuition on this one, but I'm fixing to go, okay? Uh, I, on another more private moment when it's not highly recorded and passed out through the Internet, I'll tell you what happened there. But anyway, keep moving here. Uh, here's another one. It's a fur piece down the road, okay? I had to understand that, that okay, that meant fair, not fur, but then I... I Okay, that means it's a long ways away, all right? You're going to be driving several hours. Here's another one. Remember the Alamo, okay? They're not talking about rental cars, okay? Remember the Alamo, okay? This is big. And you know you're a Texan when you go down to San Antonio, that's how they say it, and you stand there in front of that mission, you got little tears coming out of your eyes, you know that you've become a Texan. Uh, there's other phrases like, that old dog won't hunt. Okay, I heard this one on Friday at the office. I'm not going to name names. And uh, and then this this here dog will hunt. Okay, and then like another one is this is this is good when people are saying this. We're standing in high cotton. You're looking around like what? I think I'm standing on the sidewalk. No, we're standing in high cotton. Okay, I mean, that means things are great. You're moving up. You're rising up in society. Now, if we were to have a new living Texas version of the Bible. okay. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, Matt and Jeb in your free time, you maybe work that up and get a translation going for us. But if we were to have a Texas translation of the Bible, the New Living one, okay, broad paraphrase, Jesus would have used this in regard to the leadership of Israel. He would have said, I have big hat, but no cattle. Okay? That's what he would have said, and that's how it had been translated, because... The Pharisees and the scribes, they had a lot of show, but no go. They had a lot of routine and rituals, but they didn't have reality. And when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem on that Passover week, they are about ready to come unglued and they're ready to put an end to Jesus. And so you're going to find when you come to Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 23, we're going to find that it is going to be showdown time here in Jerusalem. Now, when you talk about big hat, no cattle, 
That makes you you look like you've got it under control and you've got a lot going on. You've got a big talk. But in reality, you don't really have anything to back it up. The Jewish leadership prided themselves in being called the rabbis and in the market square. And they wore these garments with their long tassels and they loved to be revered. And they they pretty much set the tone for Israel as a nation and their religion. And when Jesus shows up and he does things like we saw in a couple weeks ago in Matthew chapter 21, where he literally cleanses the temple, he walks into this temple and he starts flipping tables and the money changers. He puts them on the run and he takes all their coins and throws them and he has these birds and he releases them. And he cries out and said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a robber's den. Every time he flipped a table, he said, you've missed it. This isn't it. I want my people to know me. And you've taken this court of the Gentiles and you've turned it into some sort of carnival slash marketplace. And this is completely missed reality of relationship with God. And then Jesus, they, they confront him when they hear these children calling out and saying, Hosanna, son of David. And like, what are you doing accepting that sort of praise? That's reserved for God himself, for the Messiah. And remember, Jesus said, you know what? Hey, the stones are going to cry out if these little children don't. Even little children are going to cry out and proclaim who I am. You've missed who I am. And then Jesus gives an illustration to his disciples as they're making their way on Monday to Jerusalem. Remember, there was this beautiful fig tree and it had all these leaves. And it looked like it would really be bearing fruit. And there should be those little buds that come out on that fig tree that you can actually eat before in the fall when the big figs come. And Jesus comes to that fig tree and he looks and there is absolutely no fruit to be found. And that meant that that tree would not bear fruit, figs, later on. Remember what Jesus said? I'm going to give you a picture of this nation. He cursed that fig tree and said it will never bear fruit again. And he literally, it withers up and it dies. And he gave them a picture of what it looks like to have a big hat, but no cattle. And that's what was taking place with the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, how about you? You want to just go through a lot of religious routine? Do you want hypocrisy to be the hallmark of your spiritual life? Say the right things when needed. Pack a Bible around on occasion. Show up at church every once in a while. Smile and say the nice things. But in reality, it's just a show. Or do you really want to experience life with the living God? And what does that really look like? I'll tell you, for me, I, I'm not interested in hypocrisy. I, I want to be genuine. I want to know God. I want to experience God. I want to understand his word. And I want to walk with him with holiness and integrity. I want to experience the fullness of life in God. I don't want to settle for anything second. And I'm certainly not interested in some sort of show. I have a feeling you're in the same boat. So what does that really look like? What does it look like to have a faith that is genuine? Not like the religious Pharisees who had a heart. Their heart had left their habits. They had form, but they had no authentic faith. Well, when you come to Matthew chapter 21, when we see the showdown, you have it in living color right before you. How do you develop a faith in Christ that goes far beyond words? Well, you find it right here. Well, let me tell you. First of all, you have to have absolute clarity in your mind as to the authority of Jesus. Look at what takes place here. 
So verse 23, this is Tuesday now, when he entered into the temple, the chief priests and the elders came to him while he was teaching. You see, it was at the temple that the word of God was to be proclaimed and taught and people were to come to know. In the court of the Gentiles, the Gentiles who saw that their life was devoid of God, the, the idols of the Romans simply weren't going to hack it. They weren't into just kind of trying to work up some sort of spiritual fervor. They wanted the reality of what it means to know the living God. That is where they were to find out. You were supposed to be teaching and opening up the scriptures and communicating them so people could understand what life and relationship with God was all about. And for those who truly believed and were a part of the nation of Israel, they were just to literally be fed with the word of God. That is not changed. That is always God's plan. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man does not live on bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I want my people fed and fed well. I want them to be nourished with the pure milk of the word. The scriptures to be taught in the temple. And so after Jesus, the first day, flips all the tables out and puts a run on their market, he says, I'm going to show up here and I'm going to do what what was intended, teaching people about the living God. Well, while they're doing that, the chief priests and the elders show up. They had, obviously, they had been planning and scheming. And let me... Don't shortchange these guys. These guys represented the the Sanhedrin. They were the legislative, judicial, and executive branch of Israel. They had widespread authority. Now, the Sadducees, who were part of this group, they were very political. And when you see these chief priests here, this they were they were yes part of the Jewish nation. The Romans actually could rotate them in and out whenever they wanted to, but they had to. So they had to be political. And they had to keep Rome happy, right? Because they wanted to keep their position. At the same time, they had to have a pulse on the people because they were trying to kind of, quote unquote, lead them. That's kind of a precarious situation, trying to keep two different groups happy. The Romans, who are the oppressors and running your nation, and then the Jewish people. Okay? And so they're kind of in a quandary. And Jesus is disrupting their life big time. He claims basically to be the authority. This is my house, my father's house. You got it all wrong. They don't like it. And so they're going to have to put an end to Jesus. And they are smart. They have come up with the solution. You could almost imagine them scheming. What is it that we could do to nail Jesus and get rid of him once for all? And they got it. And so they send their little posse out there. And they've got a question. Right while Jesus is teaching, doing what was supposed to happen, they show up. And they've got the question. And it's right there in verse 23. Jesus is teaching and they say, hey, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Who in the world are you acting like something? Who are you? You eat meals with sinners. You're out. We've got all these traditions and you don't seem to follow them. You act like you own this place. Who are you? Where did you get your authority? Now, that is a great question to ask if you don't like Jesus. Let me tell you what's going on here. You see, they've seen all these things, him triumphal entry, clearing out the table, receiving all this praise. So they want to find out where did you get your authority? It's clear you have authority. Remember, after he cleansed the temple, he actually starts healing people. And the people that aren't supposed to be at the temple, people that are lame and, they're, and they can't see and they can't talk, they literally are flying up there, and he actually is healing these people. It's clear that he's got authority. You listen to his teaching. He has got the word. He seems to understand God like they never even heard about before, as if he is God. It's clear he has authority. 
Where did you get it? See, what they're doing is, if Jesus claims that he's got authority because it's from God himself, well, you know what that means? They're going to nail him for blasphemy because you're claiming to be from God, of God, claiming to be God himself by what you're doing. You know what? You're blaspheming. That's what they're going to say. And we're going to make sure you die. And they had been plotting this. You actually read in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, they had been plotting his death. And that question will ask it. However, if Jesus says, well, I'm, I'm doing this on my own authority, then they're pretty sure that the people will go, ah, oh, okay, so this guy is kind of on his own program. He's obviously alienated from the God of Israel because he's, got, he's following his own authority. And so we've got him. Either whatever he spawns, we've got him nailed. One way or the other, the people are going to abandon him or we're going to be able to kill him. And we're going to get back to life as normal where we're in charge and people basically do what we say. So they show up with their question, and it is a good one. But with just effortless intelligence, Jesus said to them, verse 24, you like questions, huh? Let me ask you one. I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, guess what? I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, this was common uh, in debate, uh, in discourse among the Jews, as well as the Greeks, scribes. This is what they would do, philosophers. They would follow up and ask a question when being asked a question. They really truly get to the heart of the matter. They were probably not planning on this. They wanted Jesus just answer the question. And Jesus says, you know what? You like questions? Let me ask you one. And so he's going to pose a question to them. Look at this. <laughs> you, you got to just see him start sweating. I'm sure there's beads of sweat starting to come off their forehead. Like, what? Wait a second. You weren't supposed to ask us. We're asking you the question. Wait a second here. And Jesus asked this question. Verse 25. The baptism of John. Oh, when they hear John, John the baptizer. Oh, no. He had been a thorn to them big time. Jesus is bringing it up. What is he doing? The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? You're the authorities. You can actually discern what's from God and what's not, right? You're, you're highly intelligent. You're well studied, very educated. Everybody bows down and shows you all these signs of respect. You know it all, right? So how about this? John the baptizer. Where do you get his authority? Was it from heaven or from men? <laughs> They're like, you can almost see them step back because they can't answer that question. They're smart. They're intelligent. They're thinking through the implications of their answers. And look at this. They don't answer. Verse 25. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, you just see, like, all right, time out. Huddle up. You know what I'm saying? They, they call a huddle. I'm like, wait a second here. Jesus just asked us, what do you think about John the baptizer? What are we going to say here? And so look at the, the reasoning is actually recorded here. The reasoning among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, well, he'll say to us then, well, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. Luke says that they feared the people so much that if they were to say that John wasn't from, sent by heaven, which is a euphemism for God, they would stone them because John was highly revered as a prophet among the people. And so they're in a huge quandary. 
all of a sudden they're in a lose lose situation. If we say that, well, uh, John was sent from God, they're nailed. First of all, they had done nothing about John. John, when he gets taken over by Herod and imprisoned, did they ever step up and say, hey, this is one of our prophets. He's sent from God. No, we're going to we're going to fight for this man. Absolutely not. In fact, Luke records in Luke chapter seven, verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, having not been having not having been baptized by John. The Pharisees and the scribes, they rejected God's purpose for themselves because John called the nation to repentance. And John furthermore said that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember in John chapter one, verse twenty nine, Jesus, John sees Jesus coming and John says this, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is it. This is the Messiah spoken of in Isaiah 53. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John said that Jesus is the Messiah. John called the nation to repentance. And how did the Pharisee scribes and all the Jewish leadership respond? No way. We're not having it. And Luke says they rejected God's purposes for them. So can they legitimately say that, well, John's authority is from God? No. That's out of the question. Because they never followed through with it. That means that they're wrong. Can't be wrong, right? No one likes to be wrong, especially when you're in authority. Well, then what's the other alternative? Well, we could say that he came up on his own authority. And his authority was kind of appointed by himself or by men. But if we do that, the people, they'll probably kill us. Do you want to die now? Uh, no. And so they're like literally in a quandary. They thought they'd have Jesus nailed down. All of a sudden, they don't know what to do. And so they're wrestling with themselves. And so verse 27, but answering Jesus, look at this. They said, you know what? We do not know. You, they, they had to eat a lot of crow on that statement right there. He also said to them, really, you, you don't know. Is it that unclear to you who I am and where my authority has come from? I don't think so. I think you know exactly who I am. No one can do the miracles that I do, say the things that I have done, if I am truly not from God and if I'm not truly Messiah himself. And so Jesus says, you know what? Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Friends, if you and I are going to, uh, if we're going to have a faith that's more than words, do you know what? We have to be absolutely clear in our minds who Jesus is and his authority. And that is what he's telling us here. If you really want a faith that goes beyond words, it's more than rhetoric. You have to be absolutely convinced of the authority of Jesus, not playing games like the Pharisees and the scribes, acting religious, but in fact, you don't have a relationship. And so what we do, if you really want to grow in your faith, we grow in our love, awe, worship of Jesus Christ. We recognize that he is the authority. He is the Messiah. And you know what we do? We focus on his love, focus on his power, his cross, his resurrection, his manner of life, his words, his holiness. You see, we find as believers in Christ that our identity and security is completely wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And when we find that we are so caught up with him, that we recognize his authority, the reality is that we grow in our faith. Are you tired of being superficial if that is your spiritual condition? So let me encourage you, set your eyes upon Jesus 
and fix your eyes upon him who's the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we do, we grow and we become deep people because we worship and see Jesus as he really is. But if you also want to grow, to have a faith that's just beyond words, you're also going to have to know, have a conviction from the heart to obey Jesus' call. So these Pharisees and scribes, they come and they're like, I don't know. And Jesus said, well, really? You don't know. Well, then guess what? I'm not going to tell you. But I'll tell you a story. I'm like, oh, you just got to see, like, they, they have no idea what's coming next. I mean, they've just been blindsided once. Now Jesus is going to tell them a story. And so he, he begins a traditional pattern, verse 28. But what do you think? Since you're thinking so hard about who I might be, what do you think? And now he's going to tell them a story. A man had two sons. You see this in verse 28. And he came to the first and said, hey, son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. So they're like listening to the story. They're very common. Vineyards, I mean, grapes, that was one of their primary uh, commodities. They, th- this is very common. You had to work in a vineyard. You had to work all the time, especially in harvest time. So this first son, he says, I'm not going to go. But afterward, he regretted that he said that, and he went. So you can see them like wrestling with this. Like, why would the son say no and then go? Hmm, what is Jesus getting at here? Why is everybody looking at us? Then, verse 30, then the man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. I'm going to go. After all, you know, you've asked me to go. You're my dad. I'm your boy. Of course I'm going to go. I will go. Yes, sir. That's good. He's been Texas groomed right there. But he did not go. Whoa. Okay, so they're listening to the story about these two men. And they're, they're boys. Listen to dad. Whoa. So then Jesus says, Let's, this is a very simple story. Okay, this is not a trick question. Verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? Okay, this, this is so easy that they can't plead. We're not sure. Okay, that card will not work because they'll probably get thrown off, you know, the whole scene if they, they could say something that crazy. So they're at, Jesus says, all right. Real simple story. Who did the will of the Father? They didn't have to huddle on this one. They said, well, the first did. And Jesus said to them, you see this in verse 31? Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Verse 32. Remember that question about John, the baptizer? Let me bring this full circle for you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. You see, let me tell you about the story I just told you. You see that that first son? He's like the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the people that were completely outside of the realm of acceptance in Israel. The people that were immoral, that they had this God-shaped void in their life, but they were filling it with just their own life and pleasure and their own sense of power. And and they were oftentimes doing something very immoral. And the the absolute worst of society were the tax collectors, the ones, the people that sold out to Rome to collect taxes from the Jewish people, and the prostitutes. They were the absolute worst of society. And Jesus says, you know what? These people will get into the kingdom of heaven before you. 
What he's saying is that, you know what, they're like that first son. He said, absolutely not. God, God says, this is me. This is how I'm to be worshipped. And you know how it is. When you're caught up in sin, you're not going to have anything of it. But the beauty of the gospel is when John called people to repentance and said, you can know God. You don't have to live this way. You can experience the life of God. In fact, I'm pointing to the way of Messiah. He is coming. I will show you who he is. You can have him. You can have life. You don't have to have this sin. And you know what? They're like, you know what? They what? They regretted it. Did you see that? Verse 29. That has the idea of a deep change of mind with a sense of regret, remorse. There was a brokenness. They saw we missed it. And they literally went and followed the path of righteousness. They believed God and God's message through John. They believed that he was pointing to the Messiah. They likely believed in the Messiah himself because they what? Notice what they did. They went and did the work. They believed and they actually went about the work. You see that in verse 29? Afterward, they said they regretted it and they went. And they said, I will I will do what the Lord has asked. And they involve themselves in the work of God. However, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're like the second son. We're all show, no go. Big hat, but no cattle. Of course we're going to do whatever the father wants. But in reality, completely missed it. Jesus said, you, you didn't even have remorse after seeing people who are truly understood their sin, turn to God and believe and actually go involve themselves in the work, you didn't even do it. Friends, what he's doing here is he's being gracious with them. He's saying, you still have an opportunity to believe. And that is how God is. You see, it doesn't matter what your background and your condition is. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. And that is why Jesus is telling this story. We have to see that Jesus offers us the way the way of life. You want an example of what this looked like? Remember that guy named Zacchaeus? He was a tax collector, kind of small in stature, hiding in trees, things like that, looking for Jesus. Remember when he finds Jesus, Jesus says, hey, listen, I have lunch at your house today. And remember after coming to a place where he actually believes in Christ, he literally says, hey, I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody, which would probably have been a lot of people, I want to pay them back four times as much. What is that? That is someone who is actually going about the work of the kingdom, doing and being involved with what God is calling him to do. This is what Jesus was calling for. People to repent, to truly be remorseful over their sin, and to believe in him. This is the gospel. Turning from sin, trusting in Christ. Repenting of sin, receiving the Savior, and following him as Lord. Which of the two did the will of the master. And then let me just give you this one basic principle. When you're believing in the king, you will be involved in his kingdom work. When you truly believe in the king, you will be involved in his kingdom work. Because after all, he's the Lord. And what he says we want to do, it's not like, oh, we have to do this. It's like, what a joy that the Lord himself gives us work to do in his kingdom. What a gracious master he is. And what is this work? What is this work that Jesus is speaking of here? You go into this vineyard and do the work. Let me just tell you, like work like prayer, where you actually believe that God does his work through us 
as we are seeking him, beseeching him, speaking to him. Let me give you another example of the work that he's calling us to do. Presenting the gospel of Jesus to people. That is the work of a kingdom servant. We have been left here with a purpose. What? To proclaim Christ. Let me give you another aspect of his work. Making disciples of all the nations. You remember in how the gospel of Matthew ends? Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been what? Given to me. I am the authority. When you recognize and worship me as the authority, I have a work for you to do. You know what that work is? I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all the nations. That is the work he's called us to. Let me give you another aspect of the work. Giving as an act of worship for the forwarding of God's kingdom. You actually realize that everything I've got, this has actually been given to me by God. I'm merely a manager of resources that have been entrusted to me. And let me give you another one. Representing Christ's will in our homes, schools, jobs, where our lives reflect his character and that we are actually becoming more like him. I'll tell you something. The people that have had the greatest influence in my life have been the people who have been absolutely clear in their minds of the authority of Jesus. They follow one master. They are aligned to him. They love him. They trust him. His word is what they desire to do in the strength that he gives them. Let me tell you the other. They have an absolute conviction in their heart to obey Jesus' call. They recognize who he is. They respond to who he is. These people in my life that are of great influence to me, they have a faith beyond words. Friends, that is God's desire for all of us. He does not want us to develop patterns of superficiality where we put on the mask of hypocrisy and make it look good at certain times and the left are like leaving Jesus in the dust the rest of the week. He's after genuine authenticity, a faith that is cultivated as we recognize the authority of Jesus. We worship him for who he is and respond to the call that he's given us in his word. See, it's when we believe in the king, it leads us to being involved in the kingdom. And this is God's intention for each of us and for all of us. And it's like Jesus said, I want you to let your light shine in such a way that people may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So friends, this is the gospel. Believing in Christ for who he is, being involved in the work where he's called you to be. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you so much. The amazing power of your word cuts right to the issues and you have it recorded for us so that we will not only understand, but this indeed will shape our convictions in our behavior, as we totally rely upon you, our lives are yielded to you. And I pray, Father, that we would not settle for superficiality, that we would not be complacent, we would not fall into patterns of hypocrisy, but we would be completely sold out to you, wholeheartedly giving ourselves to you and your purposes in our life and in this world. And so we pray, Lord, We ask that you might see you do an amazing work. If there is someone here today who has not placed their faith in Jesus, the Messiah, would they just simply pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from my sin. I trust in Jesus as my Savior. I turn from the wicked things that I've done, 
I look for you to fill my life as I learn to walk with you. So, Lord, be glorified in our midst, through our lives, in our church, in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.